This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. One of the questions I'm most frequently asked through the contact page at thesalesblog.com is what do I recommend in the way of a simple CRM for a small team or a growing team in a small or medium-sized business that isn't complex, that isn't super expensive, that's going to allow them to go out and do the work they need to do with their customers, to be able to have the tools that they need to manage the sales force to be up and running very, very quickly and with all of the things that you need without all the external things that have been bolted onto many CRMs that make it difficult for people to use. And for a long time, I've had nothing to recommend in that regard, but I have some friends at SAP and as we were exploring working together, I spent some time on their CRM And I think it's worth a look. If you're interested in growing your business with a very simple all-in-one CRM that's going to serve your needs without you paying for a lot of the things that you don't need, you want to take a look uh, at the link here in the show notes and go out and check out SAP's digital CRM. And I'll tell you a few of the things that I like about it. I think that the most interesting thing about it is that you're going to be able to get up and running really quickly. You're going to have the ability to manage your contacts, which you need to do because that's the foundation of your relationships. You're going to be able to manage your opportunities. And a couple things that are super important to me, I think, are you're going to be able to personalize it to fit your company and the way that you work. And you're also going to find a CRM that was actually designed for mobile instead of having mobile as something that comes later. And at $22 per user per month, you literally can't beat that price. So if you need a simple all-in-one CRM that's going to serve you and that's going to serve your company without you paying for more than you need and without needing a bunch of programmers to help you build things, you want to go check out SAP's Digital CRM. Hit the link in the show notes and check out SAP Digital CRM. My friend April O'Leary reached out to me to introduce me to Phil M. Jones, and she copied Phil on the email because she thought that we would have a lot in common and that we might have an interesting conversation. I reached out to Phil, sent him an email, he replied, and we decided to schedule some time on Skype, and that turned into a podcast where I talked to Phil Jones about his new book, Exactly What to Say, The Magic Words for Influence and Impact, and honestly, What I captured here is very good. It's extremely prescriptive. You're going to like it so much. You're going to want to run out and get the book. There's no question. Phil and I talked for about another hour after the podcast, and I wish I would have recorded it for you because there was so much value just in that conversation where we shared our personal stories and talked about a lot of things that happened when we were young and how we got wired the way we did. But there will be a next time. For now, this is Phil Jones with exactly what to say in the arena. Phil, good to meet you. 
Good to meet you too. Thanks for having me. This is going to be an interesting podcast because this is literally the first time we've ever spoken. We did no kind of show prep at all. I know nothing really about you, except for we have a, a mutual contact in April. And April said, you should know Phil. And when April says something like that, I trust her judgment on that. And we've had three emails exchanged. Yeah. And, and April said the same to me. And I don't give up my time too easily. So I'm hoping we don't let each other down. <laughs> I don't think so. I, I hope we don't let anybody else listening down. But I think that's going to be very difficult for us <laughs> to do because there's so much good things for us in your book to talk about. I, but I want to start earlier because I don't really know you and just hear a little bit about your backstory. Where did you come from? Where did I come from? Well, I'm the son of a builder in the UK. My mum works in a garden centre, and I guess I wasn't supposed to be successful in any great way, shape, or form in terms of building big business. But I, I always had a passion for wanting to go out and make a change. And I was one of those kids that was fortunate enough for my parents to send me to a school that was a little bit too good for me. So um, when the kids were running around with the right trainers, and we'd call them sneakers here, I guess, in the US now, and the right backpacks and the right kind of all, all the kit for sporting equipment that made everything count. I didn't have any of that stuff. So I went to do what any normal kid would do, which was to go ask my dad for money. And he refused to give it to me. So I started hustling really from a from a 14 year old, old kid making money from there. And I then naturally just found myself into the world of building big businesses, getting big jobs, going on to then build a speaking career. So kind of happy to fill you in on the big picture, but that's certainly where it all started. It's very interesting to me that anybody who finds themselves in that sort of a space, it's the adversity that you face when you're young. And I don't know if you have kids. I have three children. I tell them all the time, the greatest adversity you have in life is that you haven't had any adversity. Yeah. It's been pretty comfortable for you. And I think, though, sometimes is is people see adversity and they think adversity needs to be like, oh, I was on my last dollar and yeah. I was there and the rain was pouring down and, you know, I was stuck in the gutter somewhere. And, and we read about them, right? You read the stories on Facebook ads that people then turned it around in three months and then they're living in a penthouse in Manhattan. Right. But everybody faces adversity in some way. And I think there is a choice that we make as humans as do we say, well, are those adverse conditions something we can find a reason and justify our lack of success because of? Or do they become opportunity and allow you to realize that more is possible? And I've been a big believer in saying, well, actually, if somebody else can do it, can somebody else be me? And from that point in time, I've really proved time and time again things that I shouldn't have been able to achieve have been remarkably achievable. And I'm not saying this stuff because I'm awesome. It's to really let other people know that they are probably more awesome than they've been telling themselves. No doubt and, about it. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I built big businesses, 14, 15, 16, 17. I was making more money than my school teachers by the age of 15. I became the youngest ever sales manager for the largest department store group at the age of 18. And there's a beautiful thing when you're young and in the leadership position because you don't know what you don't know. And at that time, when I'm building and working with big sales teams at the age of 18, I, I kind of learned two big things. Is One is, is do as you're told. Follow the stuff that has been tried, tested, and proven, and just apply yourself to it in the best possible way. And then I was learning that success leaves clues. You know, People who are good at what they do are really happy to be able to share with you how they got there, what they're doing, and they're, they're willing to be able to give you back. And then one more big thing that I learned, particularly being a young manager, and a young sales leader was you got to be good enough if you want somebody to be able to respect you. I think people demand respect sometimes as opposed to earn it. Mm -hmm. And I learned very humbly in the fact that the only way I was going to win the respect of this peer group that was significantly older and more, had longer tenor than me was to go and show them I could add value to them. 
and that came from from performing well on the field. I don't want to skip over the first thing that you said there, and I'm going to just roll it up in my uh, American way here and just say, do what you're supposed to be doing. And I don't want to go past that point because for so many people, the reason that they don't have what they want is because they're not doing what is tried and true and tested, and they want a shortcut, they want a silver bullet, they want some sort of a magic trick or some snake oil that they can buy, so it's instant results, rather than just putting in the work and grinding it out and doing what everybody knows works as long as you're disciplined and continue to take action. I have a secret formula to success, and I talk about this in my speeches. It's like it's like profound, and people think it's going to be, but it's nothing profound at all. It's to do the basics to a high standard consistently. Yeah, that's it. You know, be brilliant at the basics, and then get up and do the same again tomorrow, and get up and do the same again tomorrow. And what happens is, particularly in in the sales world, the majority of salespeople are lazy. That's why they ended up in a sales role because they didn't do anything smart enough in their younger life to be able to put them into a position to be highly skilled in another area. We like finding a shortcut as sales professionals. And so once we get to be good at something, even in our day jobs and in our roles, we then say, well, there must be an easier way. There must be a way I could do this without doing all the sweat equity at the beginning. And we're continually looking. So I even need that permanent reminder like, "Uh uh-uh, brilliant at the basics. Hold on. Am I doing those things before I start thinking about the sexy stuff? I'm just going to defend salespeople here and say some are lazy, but I, I think as a as a whole, there's lazy doctors, lazy lawyers, lazy everything else too. And by lazy, I don't mean that they don't work hard. I mean that they're looking to try and find a shorter yeah, angle. Yeah. You know, I'm one of those people too. So I, I, I kind of get it. And I and I think actually it's the intuitiveness and the and the smartness that exists in some of the people who perform in the top of the game that has that belief in them that says, ah, you know, I want to try and be able to find a way of doing more for less. It's an in- inherent efficiency. I want to talk about your book for a minute, and I-, I want to compliment you. I made you talk about yourself here, but there's nothing in your book that says, I'm great. Let me tell you what made me great, and let me tell you <laughs> my greatness so that you can see how great I am. There, I mean, and when I say this, I mean literally there's no fill in the book. There, there just isn't. So I'm reading the book and I'm like, I, it's kind of tough prep work because there's not even like a bio. There's just, there's really, there's nothing about you. And there's a bio I, in the back. In the ba- it says I hate writing about myself. So I think that's, that's what my bio says. <laughs> but it, it, it is what to me that makes this book, I, I like it because I think there's two kinds of speakers and writers. There's me speakers and there's you speakers. And you already nodded your head, so you know. I mean, the me speaker is going to get up and say, I, 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 and every every word out of their mouth is I. And then there's you speakers, which it's you, 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 and you can do this, and you have to think this way. And this, and the book comes across, I mean, it is really a you-oriented book. And w- what I mean by that is you can pick the book up, and I'm going to call it for an hour or two of effort. I mean, effortful yep. reading. You can probably change the results that you're getting in lots of different conversations outside of sales, outside of business, outside of anything, because there's so many just human fundamentals that are wrapped up in what you've done here. So I want to talk about that specifically, and I I want to go through a couple of the examples to give people a sort of an idea of what's in the book. And I've, I've come to the same conclusion that you have, having done this for a long time. There are There are language choices that are better than other language choices. And a lot of what people have been taught as language choices 
are not really good language choices and they end up undoing themselves because they think that they can do something to someone in a manipulative way, particularly in sales. So first I want to ask you how you figured out that there were magic words available to you. How did you figure out that there were different choices and how'd you discover that there's this connection to how human beings make decisions and that the good language can unlock that for them? I remember firstly, just being mesmerized at the differences in large sales teams that could happen result wise. You know, people have the same products, the same services, the same skill set, the same training programs, the same everything. And you've got one guy over here that's selling 47 and converting on options at 97%. And you've got some dude over here that's converting 12 out of 47 with 35% upsell opportunity. And you're like, what's the difference? They're both working hard. They're both positive people. They both look the part. They both turn up. They've got the right attitude, et cetera. But the results were demonstrably different. And I'd find the same in my conversations as well. And the question that continually got asked of me when I was getting great results was, how do you do it? And I felt compelled that I need to have a better answer to this question. So I guess what I did is I became naturally curious in my work, in other people's work, in anything I would look at and say, well, how does that work? And everybody was looking at how does the product get better? How do we better embellish features and benefits? Do we need a better pitch deck? Do we need to have better props? We need a new brochure. And these were the things that people were leaning towards, you know, mass. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. How about we just look and say, well, what are these people saying? What are they doing? What is happening in terms of when those words are being said? So I studied that. And then the other thing I started to think about was, well, I'm a consumer too. I buy stuff. And I actually quite like to buy stuff. But most people make it kind of difficult to buy stuff. They stand in your way. They want to give you the information you don't need as opposed to the information you do need. And I realized actually how important everybody is in that decision-making process. For me, the, the dictionary definition of what a salesperson is, whether they carry that job title or not, is that they are a decision catalyst. You know, we help people make their mind up. So if there are word choices that can actually make decision-making easier for the consumer, then you can get better results as the salesperson. So I put myself into the eyes of the consumer and then start studying language patterns. And you start trialing and erroring and testing and measuring and starting to see that, hold on, that gets an automatic yes, and that one gets a maybe. And I think this is the, the most fascinating point, is people think that you can utilize language patterns to be able to get somebody to move from a categoric no to a whooping and hollering yes. You kind of can't. What you can do, though, is you can influence everybody that's stuck in maybe and get them to choose you as opposed to somebody like you. You can get them to choose now as opposed to in six months' time. And the power of where we actually have the most influence is within indecision. It's that giant pot of people in the middle. They're non-sellable. Right. They're non-sellable. If you've got the best hamburger in the world and you turn up to the vegan music festival, you're probably not going to do great business. But you can turn up with a grotty hamburger outside a football game on a Saturday afternoon and you're probably going to run out real quick. So it's, it's influencing the people that are willing to be influenced that we get a chance to better win a fair advantage. And it just, it just mesmerizes me how language can be so easily learned, so well refined and practiced, and then can have such a profound effect. I'm not sure that listeners are going to be able to use this uh, idea that we're sharing here, but okay. So I, I just want to start with that. The pitching of an idea to say, look, I'm not sure if this is right for you. Okay. 
And I want to start with that one specifically because I think for a lot of people, we we are so in love with our company. We're so in love with our product. We're so in love with what we do that we want to go and say, hey, listen, Phil, I want to tell you about this. This is this is what it's going to do for you. Yeah. Rather than getting the willingness to open up and explore the idea at all, we, we use poor language when we're pitching someone, especially something that's a new idea. And the, I think the book even opens with that. It does. Uh, and yes, yeah, so t- tell me specifically about what's going on when you say something like this. And then I'll, I'll give you a couple thoughts on that from my experience that are, I think, right in line with what you've okay. written in the book. So for, for the listeners, what we're talking about here is, is a rejection-free way of being able to introduce just about anything to just about anybody. And it's in the premise of saying that what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to directly tell you or advise you or give you the thought process that this is something you should look at. And I give you the examples of where we've got this wrong. Let's take husband-wife scenario, partner scenario, business partner scenario, whatever it might be. And let's look at the example of where we get this wrong. And I think that this can actually help the listener understand the premise of this better is looking at the typical mistakes. Have you ever been in a conversation, say, with your partner who says what you need to do is, or I think what you need to do is, or what they're saying is, let me tell you what I think. And what does it immediately do within your psyche? Whether you respect this person or not, instantaneously, your defense goes up. Because you think, who are you to tell me, even in your most loved relationships that are ever, the human psyche says, if you're coming at me with a 100% right point of view, I want to find something about your point of view that's wrong. Because we like to collaborate as people. So what can happen is if you present an idea slightly to the left of somebody or slightly to the right of somebody and allow them to do part of the work to step into it or step away from it, then naturally they feel far more involved and engaged in the conversation. So if I had something that I wanted you to consider, I could say, hey, Anthony, hey, I'm, I'm not sure if it's for you, but would you? And by presenting it there in a good spot, let's think about what the word but does there, though. Because if I just said, I'm not sure if it's for you and then entered into the idea, then what would happen is it would look contrived. The word but, though, in that conversation does everything we needed to do. What it does is it negates everything that was said prior to it. So subconsciously, we actually condense the I'm not sure if it's for you, but to internally think in a you basis is I might want to look at this. It kind of does all the hard work by uh, creating motivation for the other person just in the language. I think a lot of salespeople who sell to high D dominant people, when you say this is what you should do, a lot of times the resistance is so high because you're, you're going with somebody who has a dominant personality and you're saying, I'm depriving you of control. I'm depriving right. you of choice. I'm depriving you of options. And I'm telling you that this is the right answer before we've had any exploration of your situation, your opinion, what you think might be changed to make something a better idea or how it might be used. And I think what you've done with the language choice that, that you've, you've shared here and I've, I share very similar language choices because I think that when you try to take control from somebody who wants that control, or when you try to take choices from people, immediately we start thinking like, okay, wait, I got to protect myself here right? because you're putting me in a box and I don't want to be in this box. I want to be able to move freely. And so the pressure for the person to have to put their hands up, you know, they can drop their hands because like, oh, okay, so we're just exploring. Well, right. okay, if we're just looking at an idea, I'm cool with that. It's hypothetical. We're great at making decisions in hypothetical sets of circumstances. And, you know, I I learned this from from a real early age where 
one thing that I could do effortlessly easily, and I'm kind of embarrassed by this for the listeners right now, is on a rainy day back in England, one of the favorite games I used to play as a kid with my little sister was we'd take my mum's shopping catalog and we played a game called What Do You Want on This Page? And I could choose as like a nine-year-old boy that if I was buying a, you know, a tea kettle, that's the one for me. The decision-making was effortless because it was in this hypothetical set of circumstances. It wasn't real life. And there's a second thing that then hammers this home. And I, I look at your bookshelf, which I know the listeners can't see right now, and I see it littered with great books. I'm sure one of the things that you've read and studied is Dale Carnegie's work. And a key premise in Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People is, is to make it the other person's idea. And I think that talks into this language choice here as well, is anything you can do to let the other person think that they decided or they wanted to do this and you're just the facilitator, you're there just to help make it happen, but they wanted it and they made it happen. That's where it becomes downhill selling as opposed to upsell. Yeah, I wrote that in my book. I mean, I think when it's my solution, it's not your solution. And when it's your solution, you like it a lot better and it's a lot more defensible. And when it becomes our solution together, now, That's magic. Now, now, now we get things done. Let me move us forward to the one that I found interesting, and I've never seen the words, I've never used them before, but it was immediately resonated with me, is how open-minded are you? Yeah, it's cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it is a bit of a tie-down because, I mean, to say, listen, Phil, I'm the most closed-minded <laughs> person you've ever met. I refuse all new information. It doesn't even matter the source. You know, yeah. it's, it's something that it's almost impossible. And so if I were to say, would you be open-minded to looking at a number of different options here? It's, and look, it's look, powerful. look at what you just said there as well. And I, and I want to kind of make a, a subtle nuances. You've asked it as a closed question. It needs to be open. So if you ask, would you be open-minded? you're at risk of being almost slightly too assertive with those word choices. If I ask how open-minded are you two, now all of a sudden, again, there is more movement in the other person. The how rather, rather than the would question puts it into a position where there is degrees of open-mindedness. Right, but how, right. many, how many degrees of open-mindedness are there? All of them. And, and you either are or you're not. So actually, <laughs> yeah. it is a closed option, but prepositioned in a way to suggest that there is a depth of range in quantity of open-mindedness makes it easier for the other person to, to answer. I mean, you know, how open-minded would you be to giving a trial to our brand new product? Um, 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 you can't say no. But if you said, would you be open-minded to, the answer would be, well, not a no, but you're going to get a condition back from the other person. Well, you know, timing's not great for us right now, right. or sounds like a good idea, but. So actually the resistance does come in, but the how versus the would question changes everything. It's subtle, but it's a really interesting way to say, I still want you to look at the idea. And, right. and I think this is the part where most of us struggle is uh, we, we need to explore before we ask somebody to decide. Correct. And, and we want to race to decision when instead we should open up, l let's look at the possibility here. And that's another way that does that. Okay, can you imagine the possibility? And let Go me give ahead. another example here sure. as well. Is, is a big part of my background was in, was in furniture retail. I ran and turned around some of the largest furniture retail stores in the UK. And people were trying to sell furniture, and I was getting them to a position where, no, 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 no. The goal here is to get them to sit on it because nobody's going to buy it unless they sit on it. So you're talking about like a couch or a, you know, a sectional, et cetera. If they're not sitting on it, they're not going to buy it. So stop trying to get them to buy it whilst they're looking at it find a reason to get them to sit on it. And it's that same exploration. The minute they can sit on it, they can imagine what it might feel like at home. They can get a understanding of saying, does this or doesn't this feel right for me? Looking at it, 
it remains in a non-realistic fashion. It, re- it, it remains at a distance. So our job, I think, in the decision-making process is to allow people to get ankle deep and knee deep before we allow them to get up into their neck in it. And that makes decision-making easier. It's almost like taking it on a trial, even if it's just in your mind. Let me go through just a couple others. And then we're going to point people, they should just go buy the book. I mean, the book is, it's just a really good, useful set of really what I'm going to just call extremely practical language. And the book title says magic words in the title, but it's practical. I mean, it is really practical. <laughs> yeah, so but this no, is nobody why wants, I like nobody it so wants practical, useful, insightful sets of words. So that's why we call it magic. It thinks, gives people more power. <laughs> it is. What I mean by practical is you can go put this to use today, a few minutes after you read it, which... Yeah, you probably put it down like five five sections in and be thinking, right, I need to go use <laughs> this now. Where's, where's my other half? There, there's no question. I want to go to what would be a good time to take the next step. Okay. I, I want to go to that one specifically because I think right right now what, what the research shows is that buyers have a really tough time buying in complex business decisions. And it's because they can't control the process internally inside a big company. CEB says there's seven people now in a decision. And salespeople need to learn to control the process and getting that commitment But I think a lot of times there are choices, of course, on how we get the commitment for what we do next and what we need to have happen. It doesn't matter if it happens on Tuesday next week or Thursday the following week. I just need the commitment to happen. So let me let you riff on this one, because I think this is for B2B salespeople. This is this is a critical concept that's worth exploring for a minute. Okay. When we're in a B2B world, one thing that is is easy to stumble upon is is a hypothetical or a general interest in what you're about. It's like, yeah, I love that. But the implementation of it, it often has a number of barriers attached to it. It's not a case of I'll buy that today, I'll enjoy it today. It normally has to have some integration into the bigger business system. And there are spin-off concerns and challenges with other people or processes or systems, right? We know that stuff. So what we've got to put is to the person who's on the buying side of this arrangement is we need them to help share with us what some of the obstacles are to the implementation and the follow-through. Because we know what's happening in their head. They like our idea. We like our idea. They quite like want to buy it. We're telling them, speaking to them about buying it. But in their little mind right now, they're thinking, yeah, but what about this? And how about the other? And what's Jim going to think about it? And what's Susan going to say? And how's this going to impact upon what we've just invested in over there? And what about the protocol of this coming out? So what you do is you shift the control in the conversation by saying, when would be a good time to take the next step? Because now what they're doing is you've just completely put the ownership on them and said, I'm not pushing. I'm not pressing. I just need you to. And when I say, when would be a good time? What happens is often their mouth opens and what they do is it becomes an us now. It becomes a me and you. Whereas what they do is they now open up to all those little voices inside their head as to what the obstacles and the barriers are. And they think out loud. Well, what I've got to think about is where Susan's with this and what Jim might say with that, et cetera. And okay, well, yeah, we probably need six weeks to get these things out the way. So I guess we're probably looking at end of Q3. End of Q3, we'd definitely be able to do this. So actually, they've gone through the decision-making in their mind because you've allowed them to think out loud by asking what is really a, a very reasonable question. When would be a good time to take the next step? It's not, I think you should buy this. And, and the other subtle undertone in that question is the question also assumes they're going to do this. So you actually, you've jumped past the, the, the yes, no, and you've moved to the how and the when. 
And I think we get hung up as sales professionals on the are they or aren't they going to buy? And the, and, and the decision itself is, is, is a micro fraction of time. It's the follow through on the decision that's the thing that we should spend more time talking about. True. Let me do two more of these in the next couple minutes that we have. I like what questions do you have for me? I think it's powerful language. <laughs> and and I, I ask it a different way because I always assume in a big complex sale with a multi-million dollars, there's concerns. So I always right. ask, what concerns do you have right now? Yeah. And how can we resolve those concerns that you're 100% confident moving forward? Because I don't want to leave and then have them sitting there going, what about this process? What about that? How? What if this goes wrong? They're, they're going to have that conversation in their mind without me there. And so yeah. my, my great fear is that they're going to talk to somebody who doesn't know how to help them or somebody who's got more fear than they do that says, right. you know, I don't know if this is the right time to do this. You know, it looks like a lot of work or whatever the case may be. The what questions do you have for me changes the nature of the end of that conversation when we're having changes it hugely. Yeah. So we also have to we also have to think about another set of circumstances. See, you're absolutely right. It assists you that way around, but it also assists you in the alternative. If you have done a great job with a customer and they're ready to buy, here's what lots of people say at the end. Do you have any questions for me? Now, if I say, do you have any questions and the person has no questions, how does the person feel? I need some questions. I should have had some questions. Yeah. Maybe I haven't got all of my answers. So actually, we've just pre-prompted that I need some time to think about it, and they might have been ready. So the do you have any questions is suggesting of the fact that we haven't gone far enough in this yet. You need to maybe understand more in the decision-making process. The swap of that question to what questions do you have for me could actually empower a decision in the other person if they have none, because now the easy answer is I've got none which is great news, which means that they've got enough information to make a decision, which means asking for it is now easy. But it also talks to your point of saying, well, if I do have questions, now's the time for me to be able to raise them. And again, by making this in an open fashion, they can think out loud with you. It makes a collaborative, almost same side selling approach that says that we're in this thing together. And as they think out loud, you can absorb that information out loud, consider it, and then help them through the decision-making process. Back to the point that sales professionals are decision catalysts. Exactly. That's my second book. I mean, I, I, that's it. It's dedicated to catalysts, agitators, instigators, and change makers. I mean, that that's the role. That's what the um, job is. That's the job. I look forward to reading it. Get but it written. It's out August 8th. We're close. Cool. The one last one that I just want to touch on is don't worry. And one of the things I use that same sort of language is, I, I don't use those exact words, but I basically say, you know, Phil, at the end of this meeting, you're not going to have enough information to make a decision today. And you're going to want to talk to your team and we're going to have another meeting because you're going to have some concerns. So I take this fear that they have away. So riff on that last one, if you want, I'm, I'm, I could yeah. have taken you through your whole book, just so you know, right. we could have given people the whole book. If this isn't a teaser for them, though, then you're not paying attention. Right. The, the subtleties in the book and I'll just say this one more time. It's so practical. When you get this, it's going to be like magic. It will be like magic for you. Yeah. And everything I did with the book is to try and take a complicated, detailed subject and turn it into the simplest piece as, as humanly possible. And I, and I made it 14,000 words long as opposed to 45,000 words long because I know the attention span of the reader. The whole, the whole premises of how I put it together is to say, how do I make this as simple and effortless for the other person well, to absorb well, the info? You did that because there's three examples for each of the language choices. And so you've got three examples and you will immediately figure out the application upon right. looking at it. 
And some of it, you can look at it and go, well, that's not exactly where I would be within my business, but you'll get the principle and the lesson and you'll learn how to be able to adapt and evolve it for you. Easy. So talk about, so we're going to talk about don't worry. An understanding that I think every human needs to have is that conditioning plays a major part in the way that we behave as adults. And the conditioning that we have as children is like just so profound into what our belief system is. And one thing that mothers and fathers tell their kids a great deal when a situation of panic kicks in or when they find themselves crying or upset about a trivial manner is they will have heard the words don't worry a number of times. And what happens is, is that don't worry set of words becomes reassuring to our internal mainframe. So when a parent says to a kid, don't worry, the kid goes, Phew. you know, it's not as bad. Somebody else is taking away some of the fear that I have right now. That same set of beliefs still exists in us today. So you get a consumer who is uncomfortable about where they're going or they're coming at you with some reasons or objections as to why this might not work or even a hostile set of circumstances where somebody is like flying off the handle about something going to go crazy wrong and cause them a giant concern. If your first move is don't worry and said with empathy and said with love in your heart, then you'll actually naturally see the other person go. Whew. So let me give you a kind of a practical application. And how you can use it in a in a real in fact, can we have fun right now and do a do a complete set of magic words that talk to worlds, giving the listener an understanding of how to use a powerful referral script sure. that they can implement? Have Absolutely. we got like four and a half minutes to do that? As much as you want. Go ahead. Let's talk referrals in the first instance. So here's a set of magic words that you can use to get people to agree to an action before they even know what the action is. And I think that's powerful. So we can use that to get people to agree to give us some referrals. And I need you to you to help me out here as a volunteer. And could you do me a small favor? I can. That would be the starting point for right. the request for a referral. So we've got people to say yes. And now we need to lead in with the ask. So what I would then say is you wouldn't happen to know as opposed to do you know. And the reason I would say you wouldn't happen to know is because it throws down a challenge. And what it also does is by suggesting you probably don't know somebody, it makes you want to think of somebody. That's automatic, right? right. Yeah. When I say it makes you, it's a subconscious make. It's, it's the way sub that subconscious. Yeah. You wouldn't happen to know maybe just one person. Why maybe just one person as opposed to anybody or somebody? I've minimized the size of the ask. And by just one person, like it'd be such a reasonable ask. If I don't come up with this, then actually I'm the bad person. You wouldn't happen to know maybe just one person, someone who just like you. Now, if I'm saying the words just like you, what does that say to the recipient? Well, number one, it's a compliment. It says I like you. Number two, it provides a filter towards exactly who they're thinking of in their mind. It makes it easier to think of somebody because I'm now fishing in a smaller pond of my memory bank. You wouldn't happen to know maybe just one person, somebody who just like you would benefit from. And now all I'm going to do is serve them back the benefit that they've said like that they like from me. So would benefit from saving, you know, $3,200 a year on their whatever, would benefit from having increased efficiency in this or would benefit from whatever they've had. And then let them think. Now, when you see that they thought of somebody and no, I say you'll see that they thought of somebody not here. It's because they'll move. Their physiology will change. They'll lean forward. They'll lean back. They'll cross. They'll uncross their hands. That moment when they thought to somebody, they'll break the awkward silence. But instead of you, instead of them breaking it where they tell you about the person, you break it with the words, don't worry. So if I say, don't worry, when I see they thought of somebody, whew, he's let me off the hook because you put them on the hook, right? So now you let them off the hook. But don't worry. I'm not looking for their details right now. 
But who were you thinking of? See, now what I've done is I've just taken them on a little bit of an emotional roller coaster. So I've got the don't worry that says, whew, I'm not looking for their details. Whew, but who was it you were thinking of? Well, now I can tell you in a fearless, well, I was thinking of my buddy Steve. Well, when are you next likely to see Steve? I'll see him next Thursday. Well, when you next see Steve, would you perhaps have a quick conversation with him to see if he's open-minded to taking a call from me to see if we can help him in the same way that we've helped you? Yeah, sure. There's two major things that I want to point out here that salespeople generally get wrong. And the more transactional they are about this, they're going to ask for a list of names. <laughs> okay, so, so, so that's number one. And the number two, the don't worry, the challenge that salespeople don't understand when I say, Phil, give me three names of people who might benefit from this thing that we did together. First off, it's a lot of, it's a big ask. And the second off, I did not say anything about how I'm going to treat those people. So now I have to be resistant as the person being asked because these are my friends and my peers and now you're going to hustle them and they're going to say, this cat just called me and said all these things, you know, and, and they're not prepared for that. But the way that you, you laid that out, it's one, and I'm telling you that this is going to be safe for you to make this referral. You're and making it can, safe for me. What we can do is we can, we can manage this out one at a time. So he gives me the one and says he's going to speak to Steve next Thursday. I can then call him and I can ask for permission again. I can say, so would it be okay if I give you a buzz on Friday? Find out how the conversation goes with Steve. He says, yeah, sure. I say morning or afternoon when suits you best. He says afternoon. I say somewhere like 3 p.m. Does that work? And he says, sure. So now I've scheduled and I've controlled again, back to your point about saying controlling conversation. But here's the real magic about when you control a conversation. When I control a conversation, I can start the phone call differently. Instead of saying the worst words in the world, which is, is now a good time to talk, I could say, hey, it's Phil, I'm just calling as promised. And if I called you and said, I'm just calling as promised, what's the only thing you could say back to me? Great. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, that's what we did. That's what I, you do. I'm going to point people to this for a while because I can't tell you how many people open up a, a phone call with this now a good time. <laughs> And I, I don't, I don't understand why you would ask that question. It's, it's always baffled me. And there are sales training organizations in the United States that actually teach that as, as oh, how man, to do it drives this. Me, nuts. me too. Cause I want to say a good time for what, what are you on the phone for? It's just a very, very awkward way to open a conversation, well, but well, they think it's that, a tie down. This is 2017 now, right? If I call you and it's not a good time to talk, what do you do? I hit the little text button that says, sorry, I can't talk right now. Right. Or you don't pick up or you let it run to yeah. voicemail. So what you've done is somebody has decided they had time to talk. So they hit the green button and you ask a stupid question in opening the conversation expected to go to a good spot. Yeah. Baffles me. Listen, I want to thank you for being here. Where do you want people to go to buy the book? Where do we send them here in the US? It depends how many they want to buy is the, the, the simple kind of answer to that question. If you're looking to buy one for yourself or a couple for your team, the best and most efficient place to go is to a little business that Jeff Bezos runs called Amazon. Go to your own Amazon marketplace wherever you are in the world and we're everywhere. We're on pre-order right now. Full release is 23rd of July, 2017. So you say you've read it. You're one of about 20 people that I have did, read it. I so. did not know that. So that is that is a cool thing. Well, thank you for sending it to me. I mean, it, it's spectacular and you've managed to make it simple, which is not easy to do. And if anybody wants more than one copy and they're, and they're looking to get numbers for their team or anything that way around or want to want to engage with me, come via my website, philmjones.com, 
And what you can do is you can you can get bulk orders by working with my team there and, and save yourself some pennies, or you can reach out and find out how I might better help the organization more. Thank you for being here. No, very good to kind of get to know you better as well. I'm excited to listen to uh, when your new book comes out. I want to plug into that. And uh, well, I've already become a fan of your work in the last like four days, knowing that this was set up as I've been trawling YouTube videos of yours and reading the sales blog myself. There's some really great stuff. So your, your listeners are blessed to have some high quality content. Well, thank you for that. That was Phil M. Jones, and I say the M in Phil Jones because you're going to find him at philmjones.com. His book is called Exactly What to Say, The Magic Words for Influence and Impact, and you will find links to that in the show notes. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com where I blog daily. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino, where I vlog daily, and you can also find my new book, The Lost Art of Closing, at thelawstartofclosing.com or amazon.com or bnn.com or in the store at Barnes & Noble starting August 8th. Until next time, I'll see you back here in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.